0: We are today going to be jumping right into the deep end of the pool. Uh, We are, as I've uh, tried to prep you throughout this week, I shared a little bit last week of an announcement uh, that today is Pro-Life Sunday across America. Uh, Many churches across the country will be taking a moment to speak into the topic of abortion. uh, And today I'll be talking not only on abortion but also on the topic of adoption to equip you, to walk through it, to speak pastorally into this, and to help us navigate this conversation together as a church. I tried to prepare you beforehand, and so I encourage you, if you have children in the room, just know that is what the topic is. If you have children at home, know that's what the topic is. I think I've prepared this in a way uh, that you will uh, be encouraged if your children are here, but do what you need to do if your children are with you. Um, Children, if you're in the room right now, did you get this amazing coloring sheet when you came in here? Yeah, did you see this one? I know my kids were already coloring it way back there. All right? Let me me read this to you. It says, The creator of the universe that made everything from the stars, the sun, the ocean, and the creatures in it created something even more precious to him, and that's you. He created you. And God doesn't just make junk. Never feel like you're not enough because the maker of the world knows you by your name and calls you his child. Children, I want you to know something that's pretty amazing. In your life, wherever you go, whatever you do, there is a God who made you and formed you. In our house, we like to play with Play-Doh. One of our favorite hobbies to do is play with Play-Doh. In fact, we'll sometimes make big batches of Play-Doh and we'll make characters and little structures out of it. The Bible tells us that God made you in the womb. Just like when we make creation with Play-Doh. Just think about that. When you were growing in your mommy's tummy, he, he was He was molding you and forming you. And what that means is that he knows everything about you. And so in your life, whenever you feel scared, whenever you feel nervous, whenever you feel like things are just not right, you can always go back to God. He knows you even better than you know you. That's amazing. Always remember that, kids. God says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. All right, kiddos. Remember that today. And I want you to ask your parents about that later on today as well. All right. All right grownups, let's dig in. If you have your bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 that's going to be the basis of our text today. We'll be throughout the bible, but Psalm 139 is a good landing spot for us before we begin. American history is filled with great moments and it's filled with terrible, tragic sin and the consequences of such sin. I love American history. I read a lot of American history. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an amateur American historian, but I certainly love American history. And I will tell you this, the great scar on American history, the great scar was human slavery. You look at history and it's just one of those uh, great scars on our past that continues to have repercussions throughout even today. And when I look back on history, I oftentimes wonder how uh, the nation permitted that to take place for so long. How did it take place right under everyone's noses and everyone just felt like they were okay with it? it? You know, there were two basic principles, if I could whittle it down. It's a complex issue, right? American history is always complex. But there were two things that speak very clearly into why American slavery went on as long as it did. Number one, the perpetuation of the idea that some people are less than human. Now, that should make you sick to your stomach. Is When I say that language, and you think about the history of America with slavery, the concept that anyone would ever say that anyone is less than human should make you just sick to your stomach, as it does me. But that was the claim, and throughout history, whenever there are tragedies that are done upon certain people, it always is rooted in that principle, isn't it? It's what the Nazis did to the Jews in Germany. They claimed that they were less than human, and that gave them permission to do whatever they wanted to do. The second principle that happened, second principle, was that everyone just assumed that's how things were done, and they didn't want to be their their one to stick their finger on the problem and make a scene. Good, Christ-loving people who stayed silent for decades, year after year. It just seems like it's the way it is. We're not going to be able to change anything, so just stay silent. Don't you wish you could go back in history and, and slam your fist on a table and say, that's not okay, this is not the way the Bible speaks about things, that's not going to happen so long as I'm alive and I'm in this place, so I'm going to fight until it's done, and we're going to finish this thing once and for all. Don't you wish you could go back and rewrite history that way? I know I do. Today, the topic we're going to address is abortion and Abortion is a divisive topic. Over the last few years, we have seen state after state basically take one of two extremes. You've got states that we see across the nation that are are doing their best to outlaw abortion. You've got states like our own that are doing their best to make abortion free and on demand and as cheap and easy as possibly could. And it seems to be that we're as polarized on the topic as you possibly could. In fact, I'd say we just got through a bit of a wild presidential election And if there was one topic that spoke into it above and beyond every topic, what was it? It was abortion. That was the number one topic when it came to the election. It's a divisive topic. And while I want to make sure that I never draw a direct line between the evils of slavery and the evils of abortion, I do want to draw a line between the principles that kept that uh, institution of slavery in place for so long. Principle number one. Some people are less than human, therefore we can do anything we want to them. And principle number two, it's just the way it is, and I don't want to be the guy to stir the pot. Those are the principles I want to, kick, uh, I want to hit on today. Before I go any further, I want to take a, not just a moment, I want to take an important uh, bit of time here uh, to speak into what I know is taking place in this room. I, I've gotten the privilege to be your pastor for the last seven years. I've walked a lot of life with a lot of you. You've walked a lot of life with my family. I love you. I love pastoring you. And I also know that when a pastor gets on a pulpit and begins speaking into the topic of abortion, there is a lot of pain in the room on many different fronts. And it's very complex where that pain comes from. For starters, just different angles to come at this from. Some in this room are struggling through infertility right now. And, and that's a pain that, you know, If I could just say, I, I have a lot of conversations about that around our dinner table with people. So if that's you, I want you to know you, you are in a community that, that loves you, that knows you, and, and can I just be honest, knows that pain. And when you hear a conversation on abortion, that, that, that strikes a, a nerve with you that's very real and very unique. And I just want to speak to you the love of Christ and say you have a church family. You are not forgotten on me today as I preach this topic. I do need to go clear with it but just know you're in my heart. I'm praying for you by name. Some of you in this room have had abortions. I think the last statistic I read this morning was that one in every three uh, women in our country will have an abortion at some point in their life. Now, I don't know the statistics of our church, um, but I do know this. and I, I know across our church, I've spoken with many women who have had abortions. And if you're in this room, I want you to know two things. Number one, my lead foot today is not ever to point the finger of condemnation at you and accuse you. I want you to hear grace upon grace. That's what I want you to hear. If you're in this room and you're like, here comes a pastor who's going to point his finger at me again. Here's what I want you to hear. My lead foot today is grace upon grace for sinners like us. Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive our sin, to forgive my sin, to forgive your sin, all of our sin. And when your faith is in Jesus Christ, the satanic finger of accusation that points his finger at you and tells you that you can never move forward because of the sins you've done in the past, stops in the name of Jesus. There's a power in the name of Jesus to declare and, and, and proclaim that Jesus' blood forgives all sin and you are declared righteous in the person of Jesus Christ. And so before I go any further, I need to just let you know if you're in this room and you've had an abortion, I want you to hear the pastoral love and the the pain that I have prepared this message through knowing that you're in the room and knowing you're listening. I love you. In Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. There's grace upon grace. And if you leave with nothing else today, I want you to leave this room doing heel clicks in the street because Jesus' grace is big enough to cover our sin. Amen? Now, with that, my aim today is to equip each and every person who's at this church. I'm your pastor. My job is to equip you. I want to equip you to handle this topic meaningfully and well. It is not a topic to be cast to the side, just like slavery would not have been a topic to be cast to the side back in the days when that was legalized and institutionalized. We must be able to handle our scriptures well. We must be able to enter the conversation well, and there is clarity to be had. The world would like to convince you that there is not clarity on this issue. That is a lie. There is clarity. We are not confused on the issue, and I want to do my best to equip you. We won't cover every Bible verse, wouldn't be able to do that. I could teach weeks and weeks on this topic, but we will do a good dive. All right, Psalm 139, Psalm 139. Let me read to you verses 13 through 16. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let's pause right there. For you formed my inward parts... My inward parts. That language, when it talks about inward parts, it's talking about the seat of the emotions. It's the hidden part of the person. That place where uh, experiences like grief, like fear, like deep love are experienced in the human experience. When it talks about your inward parts, it's talking about that part that makes you a human being inside of you. He says, you formed that. Notice the whole context of this passage, that you formed that in the womb. That's where that was taking place. You were making me and forming my humanity while I was in the womb. Verse 13, again, it says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's amazing language, isn't it? Clearly, God is not sitting there with needle and thread sewing us, yet the imagery is of that. While we're in the womb, while every child is in the womb, God is the one that's forming. God is the one that is arranging and putting together and and giving everything, not just the physical body, but but the, the way that that person will behave, his personality, her way of thinking, her unique characteristics. God's forming all of that. What that means is that we are not just evolutionary accidents, that is not the biblical worldview. We're not evolutionary accidents, nor are we random, chaotic movements of mass and energy, as the materialists would have us believe. We were made in the womb. We are creations by a creator who designed us, and what that means is everybody, every design always has a purpose, right? When there's a designer who makes a design, that design has a purpose. That means that every human being who was ever made has a purpose, in the womb assigned to them as the designer is making them. Verses 14 and 15. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, that language is really powerful. It it, it stirs up this, this image of awe and wonder, doesn't it? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It stirs up this image of holiness inside of us. When a Christian sees a pregnant woman, there should be this astounding sense of miraculous, shouldn't there? There should be this astounding sense of, he did it again. How, how does this take place? I got to be honest, sometimes I think about it. I think about a child growing in a womb, and I think that's the most remarkable thing I've ever heard of, that it could happen once in all of history. It's too wonderful for my brain to fathom that he could do this regularly. That he can make a child and, and, and we're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's too precious for me to understand fully. And the Christian can never take it for granted. Whatever conversation we're going to have about this, however we navigate the conversation of abortion, if we don't approach it with a sense of reverence and holiness, our worldview has not been shaped by the Bible. If it's just a set of logic, if that's all the conversations, by the way, logic's on the Christian side on this one, but if that's all it is, you missed it, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 16, you saw my unformed parts. That's a great little verse there. The, uh, the, the Hebrew term there literally means embryo. It literally is saying, you saw my embryo. There's this amazing moment that the psalmist is getting back down to those earliest weeks. That's the word that's being used there, those zero to eight weeks substance of a child inside the womb. They actually had a word for that in the Hebrew, and that's what he uses right here. He says, you saw that, and even those days you knew of me. Do you see that? He said, even when I was in the zero to eight weeks phase of my life, you knew those days, you made those days, and you knew me. Giving an identity to that individual and, and declaring the fact that from the point of conception, a human being is being formed. The author is glorifying in the God that knew him intimately as a person, even in the embryonic stage. It's as clear as day. That's the language. Here in Psalm 139, we have some foundational verses for us for understanding the biblical worldview when it comes to the precious life of the womb, the baby in the womb. It is a personhood from conception. Let me go to a few other passages that will be helpful for us. James 1.5. Now, you don't have to flip through. I turned the the screen off just because it's flickering. I don't want to distract us today, but you might want to write these down. James 1.5. We could go to hundreds of passages in the Bible. Let me give you a quick uh, gloss over a few. James 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew... Sorry, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, this verse implies, again, that God has purpose for a child in the womb. He's writing his story. God's assigning what will take place in that person's life. And there's meaning given to the child that is yet unborn, right there in Jeremiah 1.5. Exodus 21, if you know the book of Exodus, Exodus 21 through 23 is case law in the Old Testament. It's going through certain circumstances that might have come up in the Old Testament days and saying here's how the Ten Commandments ought to be applied, case law in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 22 to 23, when men strive together, so when men get in a fight, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Old Testament law, what are we getting at here? Under the Old Covenant, the consequences for murder, for taking a life, was your life. Okay? There were, the death penalty was used in a number of circumstances. When you committed premeditated murder, the death penalty was given for taking the life of a human being. And here we have, as clear as day, the law of God is saying, when you take the life of the child, that is considered, the penal code for that is the same penal code as if it was a person out of the womb. That's how that was handled in the Old Testament. Again, this is the clarity of the Bible. The Bible is not unclear on this topic of God's perspective of the child in the womb. Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The, The idea of sinfulness is a human characteristic, isn't it? Humans are sinful. Humans are the one that stray from God's design. To sin means that you've missed God's mark, and that's a quality that every human being, since Adam, has inherently taken on, except for Jesus. He's the only one who is sinless. But here, the the psalmist says, "I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me." He's applying human characteristics into the child in the womb. We see this all through Scripture. How about the New Testament? That's Old Testament. How about the New Testament? In the New Testament, there's a scene when Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and we get this amazing moment in Luke chapter 1, verse 41 to 44. We're told, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby that was inside Elizabeth, which was John the Baptist, leapt in the womb. And then it goes on, verse 44. For behold, Elizabeth says, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So, what's taking place? This is not just the rolling over of a child in the womb. Elizabeth is pinpointing what actually happened. When the presence of Jesus in the womb came near, John the Baptist leapt for joy. Now, you might say, that sounds unscientific. Actually, it's not. What the science demonstrates to us today is that children experience great joy and all of those emotions in the womb. It's quite incredible, the science that we now know about what's taking place in the child. And what we know is that the Bible proclaims that John the Baptist experienced joy, just being in the physical presence of Jesus in the womb. You know, in 1974, when Roe v. Wade, 1974, in 1974 when Roe v. Wade was passed, they didn't know much about a child in the womb, right? They, they didn't understand. They, they knew little bits and pieces. They obviously, you know, they, they had uh, the bodies of, of children at different stages of development, so they, they might have known that, but they didn't know much about it. They were making a judgment without much data to go on. And they made up the, enti- the entire process of trimesters was developed by that Supreme Court. That's where that idea came from. They had to try to find a way to legalize this thing they were going to call abortion. And so they, they tried to legalize it, but they didn't know much about it. But the reality is now, since 1974, the science is overwhelmingly clear. I built my argument for you off the Bible. That's where Christians root their argumentation. But if you want to go the science route, The science is on the Christian side. Let me read to you from an article uh, that was written a a couple years ago. It reads this. The pro-life message has been for the last 40-something years that the fetus is a life, and it's a human life worthy of all the rights the rest of us have. That's been more of an abstract concept until the last decade or so. This is writing just about a year or two ago. She added, "When when you're seeing a baby sucking its thumb at 18 weeks smiling, clapping. It becomes harder and harder to square the idea that a 20-week-old, that, that, uh, square the idea that that 20-week-old, that unborn baby or fetus, is discardable. New science is instilling a sense of awe that we never really had before at any point in human history. I love browsing through scientific journals to see what they're finding. Over and over, this is what the scientific journals record. Let me read to you from the Charlotte Lazier. The conclusion that human life begins at sperm-egg fusion is uncontested, objective, based on the universally accepted scientific method of distinguishing different cell types from each other and on ample scientific evidence. Thousands of independent, peer-reviewed publications... Moreover, it is entirely independent of any specific ethical, moral, political, or religious view of human life or human embryos. Now, what that article is trying to say is the peer-reviewed scientific journals in the thousands stack up to demonstrate what I am speaking of today and we knew this already that the child experiences joy and life and all of that in the womb why because John the Baptist left in the womb that's why we knew that already as christians the science is catching up to what the christians already knew and have been saying for decades what about jesus when jesus incarnated himself where did he incarnate himself into in the womb Jesus identified with all of the human experience from womb to tomb. He went through it all. And that's part of what it means that Jesus can identify with us. He didn't snap himself into a 13-year-old boy's body. He went right into the womb and experienced the entire process of life all the way from the moment of conception all the way till death itself and resurrection. Praise God for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. He experienced it all. If we take away the reality of of life in the womb, then what we're saying is that Jesus didn't experience it all, that when he was in the womb that he wasn't a human being and that he only became a human being when he took his first breath, but that's not the story we see. That's not what Jesus identified with us when he experienced all of humanity with us. We cannot remove humanness from the embryo or the fetus because it denies the fetus the majesty and the mystery of the journey that Jesus went through taking on human flesh. Now, as followers of Christ... We have to regularly ask ourselves, is my worldview being shaped by the news and the secular voices that are kind of cramming their worldview down on us, or is my worldview, my understanding and lens, which I see all of reality, being shaped upward from the pages of Scripture? There's two different ways to organize your life. One is to see the Bible as a helpful tool, but when you disagree with it, you go your own way and you take the voice of of culture around you. That's not the Christian way of going through life. The Christian way of going through life is saying, God, you revealed your precious word to me. I'm going to build my understanding of the world upward from the pages of Scripture, so help me interpret all of life experience based on the word of God. And the word of God is absolutely clear on this topic. The child in the womb is a life. Throughout human history, throughout the history of the church, there is not one person who takes the Bible authoritatively who would teach otherwise. There is not one person who takes the Bible as authoritative who would teach otherwise. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 61 million precious lives have been taken legally in this country. Let that sink in. Let me say it again. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 61 million lives have been taken legally in this country. Over a million every year. You start breaking it down, you can get into the how many every minute conversation. It's quite disturbing. Last year, on June 12th, myself and a friend of mine from Park went downtown to the Chicago Cultural Center, where J.B. Pritzker, our governor of Illinois, right after he became governor, was set to sign into law the most progressive abortion law in the country. If you remember that moment in history well, that was last year, New York made headlines when they signed their own progressive abortion bill that essentially legalized up to partial birth abortions on demand for any reason, including emotional distress. This is, we're talking reality. We're talking actual, actual laws and decisions that are being made. And if you remember the moment when New York passed their law, it made me cry. I came home and I wept that night with my wife because what happened when New York passed that law is a crowd of state senators jumped up and celebrated for minutes on end as if Jesus had returned. If you've never seen that video, it's worth watching to get an accurate picture of what's taking place in our country. They leapt for joy at the signing of that bill up to partial birth abortion. I went downtown to the cultural center where J.B. Pritzker was set to sign the exact same bill, in fact, even more progressive, progressive. And I went there for two reasons. Number one, I was there to pray in that room. You know, there's something about the geography of prayer. Did you know that? When you enter into dark places and you're there as a light, there's a spiritual reality that's taking place. That's why Christians have to go to the dirty and the dark places and be a presence there and not just pray from across the globe, but we send our missionaries to go be there because there's power in the name of Jesus when you show up. So, we went there to be a light and just to pray. We weren't there to be rude. I didn't go with a blowhorn. I didn't go to make a scene to put up a fight. I just went there to make sure that Satan knew light was in that room. And we were treated very poorly. I want you to just know how this happened. We weren't making a scene, we were sneered at, we were jeered at, we were told to leave the room. We had doors slammed on our face. My fingers were nearly jammed in the door as I was being pushed out of the room. It was disturbing what was taking place as we were sitting peacefully praying in the corner. The second reason we were there was to let J.B. Pritzker know that the Christians don't go down easily. That there is a force that will work against that force. And that force is Christianity. And so long as tyrannical, abominable laws are being passed in the land that we live in, Christians will stand against it. And we'll have a prophetic witness to say, it's not okay, it will never be okay, and you need to change this. Our prayer that day was that Pritzker would change his mind. was that he would have a come-to-Jesus moment, that Jesus would literally just knock him backwards off his chair, and somehow it would not get signed. God saw fit not to answer that prayer that morning. That day, he signed the, the paper, with the, the bill, with a number of pens, and then he handed them out as tokens to the people that were around him. Those pens are somewhere across the city, probably sitting on mantles, celebrating the reality of the law that took place. He said this, In a time when too many states across the nation are taking a step backwards, Illinois is taking a giant step forward for women's health. I promised that Illinois would become a national leader in protect, protecting reproductive rights. It's amazing when you watch the the language that's used and the the way that it's twisted. Did you notice the language there? Women's rights, right? Women's health and reproductive rights. Who wants to be against those terms, right? It's code word for abortion. But when it's, it's coded in language that's tough to be against because it's made to sound like it's a really positive thing, you end up sounding like a bigot speaking against it. But in fact, the problem is on their end for twisting the words of what's really taking place. Number one, abortion is not a woman's right. Rights are dictated by God. That's actually the founding of our country. That's how law is made in this this country. That's important to realize. Rights are dictated by God. Behind every right is natural law, is God's law. And every right that is supposed to be ingrained in the institution of this country is supposed to be a direct string to the law of God. That was the idea, at least. Number two, as I've already shown, J.B. Pritzker has chosen to represent an unscientific worldview. He is pushing a narrative which is against the science. No matter how many times they say, let the science speak, he is saying unscientific things. I just need you to know that. There's no question on this. No one's confused on this. Anyone who wants to read the journals can do it on their own. J.B. Pritzker and his team are pushing an unscientific model to make and write a story that fits what they want to say. And it's unbiblical. And so, Mr. Pritzker, I plead with you. I plead with you on behalf of the church. You can repent and change the law that you signed. It is an abomination before the Lord. Christians will not take it, and you can change it. Jesus offers forgiveness at the cross. There is grace to be had. The church will work with you, and we will also be the solution. You can change this. Now, church, that's our reality. That's where we are. It is not pretty, and it's real. What can we do about it? You know, Christianity has this amazing history. Back in the old days, <clears throat> in the Roman Empire, the days when Jesus was alive and the apostles were alive, there was a practice that was known as infant exposure. I've taught on this before, but I need to, I need to hear what happened in human history. The church changed the world. Jesus changed the world. The resurrection changed the world. The mission of the church changed the world. And there was this practice in the Roman Empire, this pagan, atheistic empire, uh, called infant exposure. If a family had a child that they didn't like, for any reason, if they didn't like the child, maybe it was unwanted, maybe it was a gender they didn't want, maybe, you know, something happened in life, they were moving, and the child was going to extra baggage for them. After the child was born, the parents could literally expose the child to the elements, What it meant was that you could walk down the streets of the Roman Empire and see children alive on the side of the road perishing slowly, who had been discarded to the side. Now, there were certainly some philosophers who spoke against this. If you read some of the Stoic philosophers of the day, they were spread out on this topic. Some of them were saying this is terrible. Others were just saying this is normal. It's a part of the human experience. In general, it was normalized. I want you to understand this. We're not like in no man's land in human history. We've been here before. This is how wicked humans are. This is what we do. We're on repeat here. And, and, and the Romans just left their children to die. And you know how it changed? You know how that law was that, that was outlawed? Christians did something remarkable. This thing called Christianity, the way as it was called back then, was growing and these people who loved Jesus who were rooted in the Bible were saying, wait a second, wait a second, that's not right, and we're up, it's our turn. What are we going to do about that? You know what Christians did? They adopted all of them. They just opened their homes up. The Christians would go to a worship service, they'd love Jesus, they'd walk out, and if there was a child pass, like, laying on the side of the road, the child would go, they'd pick the child up, they'd take them home, and they'd raise them as their own a child, a legitimate child of their own, and they cared for them. They'd they'd give their life for these children. They'd give them their inheritance. They they would adopt them into their family, and the Roman Empire didn't know what to do with this. They were utterly dumbstruck by the fact that these Christians who were already being persecuted would love their own with even greater love than they love their own. That's the language they use. These Christians, we don't know what to do with them. They They love our own better than we love our own, and eventually there were no more children on the street because Christians just said, it's a great sacrifice to some degree, but I'll take that sacrifice any day if it means making sure there's no children on the street, so let me adopt them. And eventually the Roman Empire caught up with what the Christians had already done. The Christians are already taking care of the problem, and then they ended up outlawing it. Christians set the cultural pace, don't they? We don't play catch-up. We we declare how it's gonna be with our feet and with our hands. We say, hey, world, you want to know how the law ought to work? Look at our lives. It's working, isn't it? I mean, you got to admit, it's better in this side than it is out there. That's human history. That's actual Christian history. That's your forefathers, the people who have gone before you, who carried the same faith as you carry today, who had the same Holy Spirit that you have in you today, who worshiped the same Messiah that you worship today. That's what they did when they were up. And now we're up. It's our turn. Adoption has always been a part of the Christian witness to the world. And I believe it will be a massive witness to the world once again. I believe it is part of the key to unlocking the great revival that is on our doorstep. It's on our doorstep. I was out evangelizing this week with, where's Joshua? Joshua, where are you, brother? You're in here somewhere. I can't, there you are. We went out evangelizing this week. What do we see? People hungry, hungry for the gospel weeping at the proclamation of the gospel. They're hungry for it. You let them see the word of truth, and you let them see the power of the gospel at work in your life. And that's the stuff revival is made of. There's been a 33, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, since COVID began, there's been a 33% increase in the number of Chicago-area children who need foster care as the pandemic has created an enormous strain on families and on group homes and makes it harder to find foster parents. There is a tremendous need for families and Christians to step into orphan care and foster care. Now, when you look at the globe, the need is astronomical. There's over 100 million orphans in need of homes. I mean, it, it, it's astronomical. And we need to step in that. Christians around the globe need to step into that. When you look at Chicago specifically, in the city of Chicago, there are 3,500 children in foster care. In Illinois as a whole, 21,000 children in foster care. Listen to this statistic. If one family from every three churches in America would adopt, ready for this? The orphan crisis in America would be over tomorrow. If one family from every three churches in America would adopt, the orphan crisis in America would be over. How about your church? Now, here's what you need to know. At Park, if you don't know this, you need to know this. There is something stirring. You only need to look around this room to see that. There is something stirring among the people of God to adopt. Let me just tell you our story a little bit. Ruthie, our oldest, is biological. We adopted two twin girls out of Chicago's foster care system. I am not preaching anything that I am not stepping through myself. I know this world. It is a difficult world. It's full of tears, unknowns, massive steps of faith, (laughs) kind of going blindly at it dependence on the church family. You all showed up for us many times. You know what? You still show up for us many times. I mean, this is like, it's hard. And the church shows up. And at the same time, it's so full of joy. My wife and our faith, my wife and my faith is so much stronger because we did this. I can't tell you the understanding we have of the gospel that is different and more profound and the level of faith we have in our home because we, we, we took this step of faith. And we were reading James 1.27, which says, "...religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world." Step into this church with us. It's incredible what's taking place across this church. You know... We have, uh, there was a statistic I read earlier this week, it said 30% of practicing Christian couples in America will talk about adopting, but only 5% of those who talk about it will actually do it. I think that's probably pretty close to accurate. Adoption is talked about often in the church, but only 5% of the 30% will actually end up going through with it. Why? Because it's difficult. And adoption is not a grow your family quick plan, that's not the concept with it, that's not the Christian motivation for it. Adoption is rooted in the gospel. I need you to understand this. Adoption is rooted in the gospel. In Romans chapter eight, we see that the we have not received the spirit of fear to fall slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. See adoption is so near and dear to the Christian's heart and we are so made of, motivated to step into the world of adoption why because as a Christian we've been adopted into the family of God that's the bible's language when we were not a child of God when we were sinful in fact a rebel to the cause of God when we were the enemy of God God paid the ultimate price for adoption he sent his son Jesus Christ and it was costly it wasn't free It wasn't this easy thing He did. He stepped onto the cross and He shed His blood that we could be non-children adopted as children into God's family. And no one can ever take it away from a follower of Christ. We're not adopted today and then forgotten tomorrow. Neither is adoption today and forgotten tomorrow. It mirrors our adoption in Jesus And so when a Christian adopts, we're stringing it directly to the gospel and we're saying, look at the gospel being lived out. This is it. World, you want to see it? You want to see a testimony of the gospel? This is what it looks like. Look at it taking place. Church, what will you do? If you wish you could go back to the days of slavery and yell as loud as you can, I'm not gonna stay quiet. There's there's some level of similarity taking place today. Very different. I'm not drawing a direct comparison by any means. And yet, there is an injustice at such a great level taking place today right under our nose. Are we gonna follow the same principles that those in the old days followed? Or are we gonna do something about it? And it can't be just me, and it can't be just a handful of folks. We've gotta step in, we've gotta have a voice. Let me give you some action steps. What can we do here? Number one, PARC has an adoption fund. We put aside $120,000 a couple years ago to start the adoption fund. And basically what we said is we want to make sure anybody who wants to step into adoption can have a large chunk of their adoption expenses paid for. Adoption can cost up to $60,000. I don't know if you know that. If you foster to adopt, or if you foster care, and then adopt out of the foster care system, it can be free. The state pays for your adoption as was the case in my wife and I's adoption. We, ad- we adopted through the foster care system. But if you, if you adopt directly, not through foster care, it can cost up to $60,000. And at PARC, what we've done is we've pooled all your money. So when you give to the church, here's what we do with it. We put it all together, and then we give it to people who are willing to do this. And we say, here, here's the church loving you and supporting you. Don't let money be an issue. And we've given a lot of that money out over the last few years. And we have a number of folks lined up in the coming, in the coming years to, to care on them. And now not every family that adopts uses the fund. Some say we don't need it. We don't, we, we're good. But many couples do. If you're looking to adopt, know we have resources, we have people, we have money. We want to take every barrier out from underneath you to be your church and come support you. Number two, learn more. You know, th- this room, I'm looking at... I'm looking at it. so many children in this room who I've come to know and love, who have come through the foster care system, who have been adopted into this family. You are, you know how loved you are, children. And we have this amazing community of folks. Last year, Sarah and I got to sit down on three adoption, court, uh, adoption courts from this room, just from this room. The Dresdens, the Farleys, who else, Donna Harrison. Three, just from this room last year. And that's not to mention all the families that are stepping into this. I'm thinking of the Byingtons, David and Hannah Hopper, April Clark, Laura Capp, Shalane Walker, many more. I mean, guys, you're doing it. If one family in every church, we kind of covered about 20 churches. We got a lot more to do. We're not done, and it's spreading across all the park. Did you know that as soon as we launched our adoption fund in this church, another large church in the city, I'll call them out by name, Soul City, I'm grateful for this thing that happened over at Soul City, they launched their own adoption fund. Now, I don't know the story about it. The timing might have just been coincidence, but I bet what happened is they saw our adoption fund, and they said, that's a good idea. It, It spreads. You see how that works? It spreads. Number three, when it comes to abortion, church, we have to have a voice. You have to speak into this. It can't happen under our watch. And, and, and there's a lot of ways to speak into it. Your vote matters. I'm not telling you exactly how to vote, but I am telling you this matters. It's an issue. We need to be aware of this. We need to think about this. It's not a non-issue. However that impacts you and how you make those decisions in your life, just know your vote makes something makes a difference. Number two, you have to speak into it. You have to love into it. You have to care for people. You have to be in people's lives who have living broken lives. And women who are scared out of their mind with an unplanned pregnancy trust you enough to be able to come into your home knowing that you're not going to judge them, but you're going to love them. See that? It takes place over the dinner table. That's your salt. That's what makes you salty. When a woman who's so desperately afraid that she has an unplanned pregnancy, that she can come into your home and she is going to be smothered in love, and leave there saying, I need so much of Jesus in my life because it's so good, and that family's with me. They're going to care for me. They're not going to make me do this on my own. See, that's the church. Let's be that. Can we be that? It's going to take the church coming together. Park, the world around us is hungry to see the church step into the place it has always held. We lead in truth, and we lead in compassion. What is your role?